Good morning, all. Or good morning, all. There we go. Okay. Soteriology 4, the doctrines of atonement, divine calling, and conversion. And uh, I have taken the liberty of not going very quickly through this. We got about halfway last time. So now, um, I don't do this very often, but uh, I'm going to do it today. I know that uh, grace stands for grab really awesome chairs early, and I understand that. Um, And you may be seated in a place that is your very favorite, and I understand that. If you are physically capable, would it be possible for you to just leave your stuff where you are if you need to and just come a little closer? So I feel I am not teaching two chairs, but to humans. Close enough to hug not close enough for me to spit on you. Look at that. Doesn't that feel warmer and better already? Caleb, right here in high five, uh, fist bump range. I appreciate that. Isn't this nice? This is better. Okay, you, you, this is, uh, consider this Pastor Appreciation Month, and thank you for doing that. Um, wow, we got the sheep and the goats over here, don't we? Oh, that's, that's right. Okay, this is better. And and. We don't really even need a microphone at this point. There we go. Look at that. That's right. Uh, But I know we're still recording because we have numbers of students going through this. So, all right. Oh, this is so much better. This is the body of Christ. Here we go. Let's pray and then we'll continue where we left off. Thank you, Father, for this uh, glorious day. It is a, a foggy and cold day, which makes it all the more wondrous to gather around the warmth of the fire of the Word of God. And today, Lord, as we continue thinking on our atonement and on the calling to salvation and upon our conversion, Lord, we pray, Lord, that these would be truths that warm our souls and remind us of Your grace and Your kindness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me get to where... Uh, where we were, if this is working. Oh no. <laughs> so James, uh, we are at the slide that starts. Is it working now? There we go. Uh, we're going to go to universal atonement. See if that works now. Almost there. Sorry for the silence. Oh wait, there we go back is that general evaluation mm-hmm. sorry stand to the atonement we did that logical arguments okay um, so we'll go one more so just to just to kind of bring us back up to speed um, what we've done is we talked about historical views of the atonement we did the various theories that uh, have been popular throughout um, church history And we got to what we really believe is the most representative uh, explanation of what the Bible says, penal substitution theory, that uh, Christ died on our behalf. He received a penalty that was due to us. We looked at atonement in the Old Testament that uh, that is somehow not just a New Testament concept. We looked at uh, uh, atonement then in the New Testament we did some of the soteriological concepts related to atonement, ransom, sacrifice, substitution, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Those are all uh, big words, but they're important words. 
um, for us. And most of those make sense to us. We know what ransom, sacrifice, substitution, redemption, reconciliation, just from our knowledge of the English language, we can understand those. The one that always eludes us is propitiation. So a, a good synonym to remember is the word satisfaction. The propitiation is the, the satisfying of the wrath of God um, by means of the cross. And the result is, is that it makes you favorably disposed toward God. Then we looked at the extent of the atonement, which is the question for whom did Christ die? And we you know, tried to be as intellectually honest as we can and uh, explain that there are Bible verses that those who hold to universal atonement uh, hold to. Um, and, uh, but I'd like to show you this morning that uh, those arguments really won't hold water. So we've done limited atonement. We explain the logical arguments and scriptures for limited atonement. The basic argument is that there are tons of Bible passages that indicate that Christ died for a particular group. And that group was chosen in advance, not chosen at the end. So now we'll look at a universal atonement and then we'll evaluate it. Um, universal atonement says that Christ died for every person, but his death is effective only in those who believe the gospel. And I just I want to reiterate this, that universal, believing universal atonement is not the same as being a universalist. A universalist um, is a heretic because they don't believe that you really need the gospel because everybody's going to be saved uh, anyway. So, but universal atonement says that Christ died for every single person that has ever lived, but his death is only effective for those who believe the gospel. So that's kind of a, kind of a, a, a chintzy, uh, wimpy halfway point, uh, a way to appear more holy and more compassionate than God is himself. So we have to just go with truth. Um, there are some passages that are believed to indicate that Christ died for everyone. It's just a couple of key, key examples. Uh, John 1.29. And do I have that up there on the slide? I can't see it that far. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just read them to you. John 1.29 is one, and then I'll give you a list here. John 1.29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, this is John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's, there's the main proof that God says the sins of the whole world will be taken away. There are other world passages that are important. I'll just give you a short list here, and I, I apologize if they're not on the slide. I'm not sure why. I think the guy who wrote them. Go back. Wait. Other way. Was it there? Yeah. Thank you. Yay. I withdraw my apology. Here's some other world passages. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world. Right, we understand that. Romans 5, 6. 1 Timothy 2, 6. Hebrews 2, 9. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 4, 10. And so this seems to build a pretty strong case that Christ died for everyone. Um, it is argued that John three sixteen is the most well-known verse in the world. Uh, not to make a pun there, but that's what everyone knows. If you ask the general unbeliever, is there one Bible verse you can think of? A lot of them can quote John 3.16. Or at least know that at a football game they saw somebody raising the reference. 
Um, now, in our post-Christian culture now, people don't know what uh, John 3, colon 16 means. It's some code that they don't understand. But it's still the most universally known Bible verse. And so, what do we do with that? I mean, the world seems like the world, right? Uh, let me ask you this. How many baseball fans do we have here? I know of at least two. Okay, there's a few. <clears throat> what are the seven best games to watch? The World Series, right? Does the World Series decide who the best baseball team in the world is? No, it does not. Uh, almost, I, I, I'd love to see them get some South Korean teams there and, and show them what real baseball is. So you can use the word world... It doesn't always mean world. So we know that just logically. So does it always mean everyone? So let's do kind of a general evaluation then. Now back to this. um, Of unlimited or universal atonement. First of all, we can demonstrate that many of their so-called proof texts don't take context into account. You have to take context. And and we're we're not arguing against the truth of all those verses I listed. Obviously not. But for example, I'll give you one, Hebrews 2.9. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Here it is. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Sounds pretty universal, doesn't it? Sounds like the whole world. Well, The problem is, is that the very next verse defines everyone. The very next verse, Hebrews 2.10 says that he might bring many sons to glory. Not all of them, but many. So how do you define everyone? The many sons, the many daughters who are brought to glory. So you have to let context help. It's another evaluation we could make. Some proof texts don't take into... Uh, translation into account. First Timothy 4.10 For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, how does that make sense? The Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. How can He be the Savior of everyone but especially those who believe? Well, especially in Greek is a very broad word. It can be translated numbers of ways. And it can have the meaning of that is or above all. So let's put that in there. Who is the Savior of all people, that is those who believe. That's what's called an appositional statement. Not oppositional, but appositional statement. An appositional phrase is the same. It's synonymous with the phrase before it. All people equals those who believe. So that, that is, a, frankly, a first-year seminary student could figure that out. And so it's disappointing when theologians stick to that when they're not going back to the original language. There's another evaluation. Universal atonement verses can't mean, they cannot mean that Christ's death provided for this, the satisfaction of the wrath of God for everyone. It can't mean that. Scripture is very clear in numerous places. Uh, for example, uh, John 10 Acts 28, Ephesians 5, that Christ's atonement provides satisfaction of the wrath of God for believers only. 
Unlimited atonement says that Christ's death is only potential satisfaction for everyone and the actual satisfaction for some. This is, this is very weak. Why is this weak? Because the wrath of God was already satisfied at the cross, not potentially satisfied. Jesus did not say, it is almost finished. He said, it is finished. What did he mean? The wrath of God is completely, utterly satisfied. How could he say it's finished? Because he had already taken the wrath of God in his own person. So in actuality, only those who place their faith in Christ will experience the benefits of the cross. And so in our final analysis here, limited atonement is the end result. I've talked to a lot of people because um, the general evangelical belief is in unlimited atonement. And in fact, the uh, IFCA, which is an organization we would highly align with, um, the uh, fellowship, uh, I, don't, I never remember what the letters stand for, but it's Fellowship of Dispensational Churches like ours. Um, their official uh, stance is that they are four-point Calvinists, not five, and they leave out unlimited. That is changing because there's good men in leadership. One of them was one of my preaching professors, and they're in leadership now, and they're, they're moving in a better direction. But when you talk to somebody and you say, do you believe that Christ died for everyone? They'll say yes. But how then do you explain the existence of hell? And so that's when they default to the potential argument. Well, Christ died potentially for everyone. Um, What's the logical opposite of that? That he potentially died for no one, right? So that gets you in trouble really fast. Um, My preference is to know that God already knew who he was going to save because that's a a much more comforting uh, belief because that's what scripture says. So, in the final analysis, limited atonement is the end result. That's, that is what actually happens. And so, there's no, there's no potential here. And we said this a couple of weeks ago, when you juxtapose this with the doctrine of election, you can't honestly say, if you're going to be intellectually honest, I believe God chose all who would be saved um, from the beginning of the world, beginning of time, yet I believe that Christ died for everyone, potentially. Those two cannot live in the same universe. They're not, it's not even logical. So that is uh, limited atonement. I, I will say this. Limited atonement feels uncompassionate. It feels like I don't care about people who uh, are not going to be saved. It feels like saying God doesn't care about people who aren't going to be saved. I want to caution all of us, and this, this goes across the board, that our sense of compassion, our sense of, of what is right and what is wrong is filtered through sinful, human, finite eyes. How can you trust anything you feel? How can you trust any sense of compassion whatsoever? How about filter this through the eyes of a holy God and ask the other question, how is it that even one person will be allowed into heaven? How is that even possible? given the fact that the sentence of death was given all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So it's, it's very important that we let the Word of God be the Word of God, and regardless of what that means, and we're going to preach on this a little bit later this morning, we, we don't use culture, we don't use compassion, we don't use any feeling, we don't use any measure of judgment. We see what the Word of God says, and that's it. Um, and this can go the other way too. I've been preaching through Song of Solomon and you'd be amazed how squirrely this makes some believers. 
because they don't want to know what the Bible says about marriage and human sexuality because they've been brought up as legalists to believe that if you just stay far enough away from everything sexual that you won't sin. What, what is that? That's Pharisee, uh, Pharisaical thinking. They let's put hedges around everything so, so we don't sin. So the opposite needs to be true as well, that what, what the Bible frees us to needs to be seen as the standard, seen as the truth. So um, if it feels uncompassionate to say that there are people that God has already chosen that will never be saved, then put that in check and worship a holy God. And, let, and if you come up against that wall, it just feels like I can't surmount that wall, then bow down at the wall to a holy God. And that's, that's where you stop. Uh, those two tracks of the grace of God and the human responsibility of man never cross in Scripture and we just let it be okay. And that's, that's what, if we could fully understand God, if we could check off all the boxes and say, I've got God figured out, if we have God figured out, then He's not worthy of our worship. I think what we'll see in eternity... Just looking ahead to, I, I've spent a significant portion of my life looking at, at Revelation 20 and the great white throne judgment. I, maybe that's kind of a dark subject to, uh, to be fascinated with, but I'm fascinated with it. But one of the parts of Revelation 20 that grabs me is that the books are opened. The books are opened, meaning the plural works of all the damned. And I think... If we get to witness the great white throne judgment, I don't know that we will, but if we get to witness it and when all the works of every unsaved person are read and are listed, we, we will have no problem believing limited atonement because every one of those people, when you come to the end of book thousand on person A, will say, okay, I believe scripture that the thoughts of man are wicked from his youth. So maybe if we think ahead a little bit to the judgment of God and what that's really going to look like, that God is not Santa Claus who's going to say, oh, you did pretty good. We'll let you into heaven. James 2.10 says, if you have broken one of God's laws, you are guilty of all because you violated his holiness. So I, Calvinists are, uh, are accused of, being, of lacking compassion. But I will stand boldly on history that the greatest evangelists of all time have always been Calvinists because we believe that connecting the gospel with the elect will render salvation. And we believe in what we'll call now, going on to the next topic, divine calling. Maybe we won't, there we go. Divine calling. And this, I think, will help us understand what our role is because uh, sometimes Calvinists are accused of not wanting to be evangelists. Again, history says otherwise. History says otherwise. So what is divine calling? I'll give you a definition here. The doctrine of divine calling refers to the call of God that invites and draws the unsaved person to Christ in a saving relationship. That there is a, a message that's given, a call. Uh, it, it, in, in Greek, it means the word. It means the words that are spoken. Which is, by the way, side note, that saying that is so popular from uh, Francis of Assisi, I won't call him saint, um, that says, uh, preach the gospel at all times, if, if necessary, use words. The gospel is words. 
There's no other way to preach the gospel. Uh, you, nobody's going to come to faith in Christ watching your life. They may ask you about your faith, but then what do you do? You start using words. The gospel is words. That's a side note. Let me give you some historical views of divine calling because there are a lot of them. The Pelagian, the liberal view, that the general call to salvation can be responded to without divine assistance. That You don't need God's help to respond to the call to salvation. The Pelagian, the liberal view, is associated often with the denial of original sin. It's associated with denial of total depravity. You can't be totally depraved if you in your mind can in fact receive Christ without having any help. And there's a belief in the universal fatherhood of God. How many of you have heard this phrase? Well, all people are children of God, right? That sounds so good. No, according to Jesus, all people are children of the devil until they become children of God. That there are two fathers. And so... You have this associated with denial of original sin, total depravity, denial of total depravity, and a belief in the universal fatherhood of God. You have the the Lutheran version of divine calling. That special ability to hearers of the gospel uh, can be resisted. That the universal call comes through the preaching of the word and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um... The, the main thing is that they don't make a distinction between the external and the internal call. Now they, some of them may believe in election, but they, they would say that um, there is a special ability to hear the gospel, but you can resist it. And so because you resist it, you choose not to be saved. Uh, again, that puts uh, the onus of responsibility solely in man's hands. You have the Arminian view. The Arminian view is that um, there is a universally restored ability to respond to God's general call. It's a single general call to salvation. Those who respond then become checked off as the elect. That the elect are defined later. So in other words, um, you were not of the elect until you chose to come to faith. Then you're elect. Um, which clearly we've said before contradicts scripture. Those who choose to resist the call then are not elect. So once again, you have uh, the, the onus of responsibility singularly on mankind. And then you have the Reformed view. The Reformed view, and this is, this is uh, really important. We could divide this into two calls. The general call and the specific call. The general call and, the, and a specific or special call, rather. General call or a special call. We could use two other words. The external call to salvation and the internal call to salvation. The general call, the external, can be resisted. That's part of my job, is to watch that resistance to the external call. It's part of my duty to receive emails from people who call me names because I'm a bigot, because we preach against homosexuality or against adultery or against lying or against anything. The general call can be resisted. The special call, the internal call, cannot be resisted. We even have this uh, in, in TULIP, right? Irresistible grace. Grace is irresistible. 
Because of original sin and total depravity, no person on his own has the ability to believe in God for salvation. So there has to be a special work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, crystal clear on this. Absolutely crystal clear. So, did I go one too far? Let me, let me back up. Okay, there we are. Um, so I'm going to give you a little more specifics on the external call then. I guess I missed a slide. Never mind. So I'll just, I'll go slowly on this. I want to talk about the the external call and the internal call. There should be a slide there. Um, I guess two of them got conflated, got kind of put together. Um, The external call, the general call of God to salvation met by various responses. So let's talk about that for a moment. Here's some examples. Matthew 11, 28. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I want to be very clear about this. The external call is legitimate. It's for real. It's not a deception of any kind. Every single person who responds positively to the external call will be saved. Jesus promised this. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's a promise. When people don't respond, it's because they are genuinely unwilling to believe. They're genuinely unwilling to believe. Uh, Romans 3.11. Let me just read that to you. Romans 3.11. Very clear about this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so there's no class of person that can say, I've been seeking after God, but God won't save me. That person does not exist. When they don't respond, they're genuinely unwilling to believe. Well, what about the internal call? In the internal call, the Spirit of God illumines the darkened mind to believe. Matthew twenty two fourteen. For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. I've given you a few other references up there as well. Numbers sixteen five, Psalm sixty five four, Acts sixteen four, Romans eight twenty eight through thirty. Kind of our uh, our really ultimate set of verses on divine calling. It is an effectual call. What does that mean? It means it's irresistible. It's irresistible. Now, this is the sticking point for so many people that they want to say, well, I made a completely independent, 100% uh, on my own choice to be saved. And they they defend this. I, I can't think of a single reason why you would defend that. Except one. Starts with a P and ends with ride. That's the only reason. In my pride, I was good enough to choose God, which is a paradoxical statement because if you believe you're good enough to choose God, then you are not worthy of salvation. Jesus didn't say, you must come to me as a college professor. So you must come to me as a little what? Child, meaning I bring nothing. I have nothing to bring to the table. I am helpless. I am, I am hopeless. I am powerless. So why people get hung up on that, there's only one reason, and it's pride, and w- which from an unbeliever we would understand. But in the church, this is the, 
This is the major view of American evangelicalism, which is why one of the reasons we're in trouble. Because we elevate man, and once you elevate man, then that opens the gate to elevating man in a whole lot of other ways, right? The internal call is linked at the hip to election. The internal call is the outworking of election. Election is the promise of what is to come. And the internal call is that moment where election becomes, uh, the, becomes reality. So, when does this happen? How is this related to uh, regeneration, to conversion? In the, in the mind of God, those are separate events. But in our experience, they, they're all jumbled up. Yeah, I, you know, there, there are, there are uh, traditions where it's really expected that you be able to name the, the day and the hour that you got saved, I would argue that not one person can do that. I don't, I don't think that's possible. I think that uh, regeneration and the internal call is so mysterious and so wondrous that you don't know when, when that happened. Um, you might be able to pinpoint it. I, I've come pretty close. I think I'm within a nine-year period in my life. But it is mysterious. It is glorious. But what's the result of the internal call? There has to be a result. Well, the result is conversion. Let's define conversion. It is a willing response to the call of God, which includes sincere repentance and trust in Christ for salvation. A willing response to the call of God, which includes sincere repentance and trust in Christ for salvation. I'll give you some examples of conversion. Acts 15.3 So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. This is the, the human side, but God went first. He plowed the ground of your heart. He convinced you of your sin. The Holy Spirit regenerated you. He called you to salvation internally through the external call. And then you were converted. And at that point, you can't run to the cross fast enough, can you? At that point, you fall down before Christ. And, and, and this isn't... Uh, if somebody says, I'm in the process of becoming a Christian, that's... No, you're not. Maybe you're listening and maybe you are what uh, the, the book of Acts might call a God-fearer. Somebody who's interested in God, somebody who is beginning to take in the truths of God, but there is a moment of conversion. There's a moment where your loyalties change. And I would argue that that, the moment of conversion is deeply wrapped up in the moment of repentance. That those two happen pretty much simultaneously. Because what does repentance mean? In the Old Testament, it's a simple word. It means to do this. It means to turn to turn from this way to that way. In the New Testament, repentance, the main word, means to change your mind. That instead of your mind going that way, it's going this way, which is another way of saying what? To turn. So, what else can we call that? You have converted from going this way to going that way. Now, the the argument of those who uh, say that um, you must have a second work of grace where your life is now essentially perfected and sinless, would say that there's two moments? Well, what's wrong with that? 
What's wrong with that is that's never happened to anyone. John Wesley is the one who invented the idea of a second work of grace. And all of his life he said, I believe in it, but it's never happened to me. He didn't believe it even happened to him. So what does this mean? Does it mean you are now sinless? No, it means you now hate the sin that used to be over here. You hate it. Yeah, you're dragging baggage with you, but you hate it. It is your enemy. It is that which you are trying to leave behind. That's the main difference. You have converted. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Rather, let me go back. The prodigal son. You know this story from Luke 15. How do we know the prodigal son was converted? He had an awareness of his sin and his lost condition. What does the, the text say? It says that he came to his senses. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges his unworthiness. He goes to his father and says, may I be just a servant? And he has a desire to return home. It's, that, it's conversion. And what a great picture too. He's, he's eating pig slop and realizes that he needs to go home. Another example of conversion, 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, here it is, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You cannot do both. You cannot serve both. Let's do two aspects of conversion and then we'll be done. I've alluded to this already But there are two aspects to conversion, negative and positive. The negative aspect is repentance. That is the abandonment of and the changing of one's mind about sin. Again, Old Testament language is the language of turning. The New Testament language, the language of changing your mind, a heartfelt sorrow for sin. Not just sorrow for sin, though. It goes beyond that. Listen carefully to this. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. I I like the New American Standard that says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Is it possible to have sorrow for sin and yet remain unsaved? Yes. Who's our greatest example of this in scriptures? Judas. He went and threw those 30 pieces of silver back at the, at the chief priests. And then he went and hung himself. Why? Because he was sorry for what he had done, but he did not repent of what he had done. There's a difference. Sorrow that goes all the way to repentance. God commands sinners to repent. And this is a necessary part of saving faith. And I, I would say that um, repentance is the part of the gospel most often left out. Why is that? Because men who stand behind pulpits want to please the people who are out here. And that's not pleasing to people, especially people who give large sums of money without wanting to be called to be converted. And so that's just, that's just wimpy, that's cowardly. But you must include repentance. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but I, I made a decision a long time ago that I must preach repentance to church members. Because just because somebody signed their name on the membership application and was able to fool some human elders into thinking that they're saved doesn't mean that we have caught every fish in the net. It doesn't mean that. And I would rather have every member of Grace Bible Church standing in heaven going, yeah, I'm here. Great. Praise God. 
than for me to ever lose any sleep thinking that I assumed that everyone in the church was saved. What did Jesus say would grow up with the wheat? The tares, right? He's talking about the church. Repentance is the aspect of the gospel most often left out. And yet it was the first message of Jesus. Mark 1, the first sermon in the gospel of Mark. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus called sinners to repent. Repentance is a gift from God. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So you can't even take credit for being sorry for your sin. When you turn from your sin, there's not one atom of your existence that can say, it's a good thing I figured this out. Even your repentance was a gift. Even your sorrow was a gift. By the way, that's exactly what happens uh, if you're a parent of small children. That's exactly what happens in a much lower realm when you spank the daylights out of your child. Hey, let, me, let me go off on this for a minute. Anybody ever spank a child and you know in your heart that they're not sorry? How do you know? There's two ways you know. Their body is stiff and they won't make eye contact with you. You know what that says? It says they're too dumb yet to know how to fake it. They're still in their sin. So what do you do? Well, you turn them over and you go to the other hemisphere and you spank them again. And if that still doesn't break their little will, then you give them a break so that the the redness can go down and you spank them again and you spank them again. And if they're still not repentant, then you you say, we're going to take a break, but there's no privileges for you. You can do the four things that I have to give you, food, water, shelter, and a bathroom. And then they're broken. And what happens when you break them in that particular instance? The relationship is restored. They become normal human beings again. They're happy. They're content. They're joyful Why? Because you gave them the gift of repentance. Now, if God was to punish us for our sin because He's holy, it's eternal punishment. And so He punished Christ in our stead and we get the gift of repentance. We get the gift of the broken heart over our own sin. It is a gift. Um, I've done marriage counseling with people where I've just had to flat out say, you were never broken your daddy never spanked you. Your mom never set limits. And you're, gonna make, you're making this other person miserable for the rest of your lives because you've never repented of anything. I can now count on both hands and both feet the number of couples where one of them has said, I have no memory of her or him ever saying, I'm sorry and I was wrong one time. So repentance is a gift and we have to be so clear about that. It's not something that you drag yourself through. It's something you praise God for. That sorrow that is just such a relief. That's why when people truly repent, there's, there's often a lot of tears that go with that because it's a relief. It's a joy. It is a gift from God. That's the negative side and I, I still couch it as positive. But the positive side, then the positive side of conversion is faith. We'll repeat that again. The positive side of the conversion is faith. Okay, well, we'll just keep going. That one's not advancing either. Faith. What does this mean? 
the New Testament and the Old Testament versions are, are basically the same, but I'll give you the New Testament language. Faith, trust, belief, to have faith in, to entrust yourself. Um, this particular word, the, the uh, pistis and pistuo word families, 240 times in the New Testament. If you're counting, that's about once for every chapter. Faith, 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 faith. There's two elements of faith. Believing something is true and personal trust in this truth. There are lots of people who go part way. Believing something is true. But personal trust in this truth is necessary. Uh, Ironically, one of my favorite, um, I guess, media personalities to read is Dennis Prager. He is a Jew who writes all the time quite accurate things from Scripture. He just wrote an amazing article on the fact that belief in the inherent goodness of man is the most dangerous thing in our society. And he quotes Scripture. But he hasn't come to faith in Christ. So he believes something that's true. He marvels, by the way, at the fact that, uh, that Christians believe in the same God that, that Jews do. They don't know how to explain it exactly. But you have to have personal trust in this truth. That is faith. The Scripture supports the necessity of faith. Genesis 15, 6, kind of our, our bedrock. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And like repentance, faith also is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, kind of our, our classic verse and I, I want to read it accurately. That tells us, actually I want to read the, the whole section that goes with it. But God, being rich in mercy, this is Ephesians 2, 4, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's regeneration, that's conversion. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By the way, there's no asterisk that says, and to show how smart you were to choose God. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the it? If we want to get really technical, the antecedent to the pronoun it is faith. It, faith, is the gift of God. We could argue the grace and salvation and faith is all a gift of God. At that point, it's a semantic argument. You know, do you, do you like the gravy on top of the meat or under the meat? It doesn't matter at that point. But faith is clearly, clearly a gift. Now, what does all this lead us to? Kind of to, to apply this. If atonement is limited, that God saves those He has chosen from the foundation of the world, if divine calling is both external and internal, meaning that in His sovereign providence, in His amazing uh, working together of all things in the universe, including your life, He placed you strategically in the pathway of somebody making an external call. Maybe it was a Gideon Bible that you read. More likely, it was a sermon you heard or a coworker who explained the gospel to you or your parents who raised you to, to believe that the God of the universe exists and that Jesus is His Son and the Holy Spirit is God. 
that through the external call, God providentially and sovereignly placed you in the pathway of that call. You were able to hear this message because he gave you ears. You were able to read it because he gave you eyes. You were able to understand it because he gave you a mind. But all of those things were still closed. They were still darkened because mankind cannot understand God. So you heard the external call. And at that moment, or shortly thereafter, or years after, that external call begins to rattle around in your brain, to bother your soul, to completely undermine your spirit till that's all you can think about. The internal call happens. You believe the truth of Christ. You see your own sin in horror. You then act upon that and you, with no instruction, nobody telling you to pray a prayer, nobody telling you what you're supposed to say or what you're supposed to do, you know instinctively because the internal call has taken hold, regeneration has happened, you know instinctively that you now hate your sin, you beg God for forgiveness and you turn from that sin and you turn to Christ. And it was all because of Him. What does, if all of those things are true, And every time in Scripture we see all glory to God. For us, that is infinitely true, isn't it? And that means when we show up to church and we sing hymns that speak of the glory of God and the wonder of salvation, that our hearts are drawn upward and not to ourselves. And we shake our head and we say, why would God save me? So that's, that's where we want to be. These doctrines are, are not just dry, dusty things to say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. They are precious, living truths that draw us to fall to our faces and to give God all glory and to wonder and maybe even despair for those who claim to be in Christ who refuse to give God all glory. God humbles those who exalt themselves and he will exalt those who humble themselves. And I know there's a, there's a progression here. I, I fall back on the example of John the Baptist who himself even said that, that, that the Lamb of God must become more and I must become what? Less. We understand that and, and we grow through that. But I think it's a tremendous moment in the Christian's life when you stop taking credit for anything and just marvel at grace. <clears throat> and that, that hymn that says, Grace, grace, marvelous grace. We just sing that over and over again. So these are not dusty doctrines. I I hope they are truths that you cling to and that you marvel at because uh, it it just elevates God and makes us just be filled with wonder and with awe, makes you sing our hymns a little louder with a little more gusto because he is a wonderful, marvelous king. So I hope these truths are helpful to you. We actually have a moment for a few questions, if you want, on... Atonement, divine calling, conversion, or anything else. We, we can do that. I didn't give you any time to think. Yes, David. Um, going back to universal atonement, is it accurate to say that Christ's death is sufficient for the whole world? Or is that more leaning on the universal atonement side? Like it's enough for the world, just only the elect will take advantage sure, of it? Sure, yeah, so... And I've actually, in my own growth, I've actually preached that before. Sorry, you can't find that sermon on, online, though, because I took it off. Um, <laughs> here's the phrase that people have used. Uh, Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient, efficient for some. 
And we understand that, and that's true. I, I think the, the sentiment behind that is to, to say essentially that Christ was capable of, uh, of forgiving every person. Actually, let me back up on that. Because that would, de- that would deny election. What it means is that the, the, the death of Christ, they're saying the death of Christ um, can cover as many people as, as is necessary. Which we sort of understand. But that was never the case. That's kind of in the realm of how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? Nobody knows where the pin is anymore. They think that, that, uh, that a pin is something you write with, but the head of a straight pin... It's a question that kind of, because of the doctrine of election, it was never really a question. Christ's death is absolutely perfect for all that have been elect. So that's where we would go for. So yeah, technically sufficient. Uh, That's the same question as, what if Adam and Eve had not sinned? Well, they were going to, because that was in the providential plan of God. So good question. That's a little bit of a mind-blowing one. That's good. What else? There's one in the back. Well, that's a, that's a classic example of bringing your theological view to the Scriptures. Um, so the way to understand all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid uh, the iniquity of us all on Him. Uh, we have time. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. This is like an ordination exam. This is so much fun. Romans 9. And I won't tell you which verse yet because that would give away the ending. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. One of the most compelling and amazing aspects of Isaiah 53 is that it is written in the past tense. Isaiah 53 is written as if Somebody is speaking many ages after the death of Christ. Now, yes, it functions prophetically because it was written seven, 750 years before Christ, and so it functions as a, as a prophecy. Absolutely. But just listen to some of these phrases. For he grew up before him like a young plant. He had no majesty, form or majesty that we should behold him. He was despised and rejected by men. As one from whom men hide their faces, here's the key, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Who are the we? It is Israel. We esteemed him not. Israel did not see him for who he was. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And here it is. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Is it true that all mankind has sinned in Adam? Absolutely. Do we believe in original sin? Yes. Do we believe in total depravity? Yes. Is that what Isaiah 53, 6 specifically and technically is teaching. No. 
Isaiah 53, 6 is teaching that all Israel has turned away from God. How then can it be that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all? Who is Israel? Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Who is all we like sheep have gone astray? The nation of Israel. Who is the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all? Every Israelite who will trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, that is the true Israel. Does that answer your question? Isn't that a great, mysterious ending? Love that. Good question. We have time for one more, maybe. Unless it's that complicated. Thank you, Daniel, for that curveball. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Uh, you know, again, uh, if I had it with me, there's a, there is a, um, a, a theology written by Robert Raymond, R-E-Y-M-O-N-D, um, and we would not agree with everything in there, but he has the greatest exegesis of the terms all, world, and many, I've ever seen. There's a whole section in there. So it's worth buying. It's a big book, but it's worth buying that book just for that section by Robert Raymond. Um, <clears throat> this, is a, this is a classic example where you have to take uh, this scripture with, with the whole of scripture, scripture interprets scripture. How many people will be in heaven? All or some? Some. Many. So we have to take many as those who will actually be made righteous. That cannot be everyone. So um, that, that one falls pretty quickly as by the one man's sin, the many were made sinners. There's two views of that. You can say the many were made sinners refers to all people. That is true. But because many goes with the many who will be made righteous, some would say every single saved person was once a sinner under Adam. And now every single saved person is now made righteous because of Christ. So either one of those hold water. So I think you, you let scripture interpret scripture and um, you, can't, you can't just stand on that, especially when you know the end result. You, those who believe in universal atonement don't argue the end result. Once they start arguing against hell, arguing against eternal uh, damnation for some, um, now they're venturing into the realm of heresy. So we, we don't want to be there. So I, that wasn't a great answer, but I, m- I might look into it even more. All right, well, that was, that was fun. Um, We're going to pray and then we'll be done. Thank you for moving up here to be a little closer. I appreciate that so much. So I'm thankful for that. And if you hurry, you can get back to your own seats. (laughs) Father, thank you for this truth. And while we've done a, a, a mediocre to even not very good job of trying to explain eternal truths that are unfathomable as little sheep those who once were reddened by our own sin, now made white as snow by the blood of the cross. We give you thanks. 
we fall on our faces and we bow humbly before a mighty God who has chosen us, who placed us sovereignly in the path of the external call and by the Holy Spirit's work and regeneration and kindness brought to our hearts the internal call whereby we repented and exercised saving faith. And we would join together as believers in Christ, saying all to Christ, all glory be to Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening.